Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward, along with my co-host and the creator of the show, Tom Jokic. Don't believe and me, just take... watch. Don't believe me, just watch. Da, 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 da. Don't believe me. We got Bruno Mars uh, this week. Ha! Uh-oh. Be very afraid. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there are times being a few thousand miles apart is not a bad thing. You know what, Christopher? If I could reach through the phone line right now and take you down, I would not, because I need you and I'm hitched to your wagon. <laughs> well, Tom, I got to say, has to get the credit where it is due. This guy digs through an unbelievable archive of interviews that span, I guess, over 60 years mm-hmm. of rock and pop music history. And the stuff that you find absolutely blows my mind week after week. So thanks for that. Well, you know, Christopher, I was just telling someone in the business that you and I both know very well. I was just telling him that I have a clip, and it must be from the late 50s, of Eddie Cochran in a hotel room talking to an interviewer. And Eddie says, oh, sorry about the noise next door. It's Buddy Holly tuning up his guitar. And I'm going... (laughs) Holy smoke! Like that. Are we going to hear that? Um, well, you know, we may. I, I just have to kind of find the right spot for. It. We don't have a '50s edition planned, but maybe I will find that clip for us. But it's just like that's wild. For anybody who knows anything about music history, you know, Eddie Cochran did "Summertime Blues," and um, mm. and Buddy Holly, of course, did "That'll Be the Day" and uh, "Every Day," and just so many great songs and a true brilliant. Um, icon in the history of rock and roll who died at a very young age, early 20s, in a plane crash. And uh, uh, Eddie Cochran died very young as well. So to have those two people in the same hotel in adjoining rooms talking about each other to interviewers is just fascinating to me. And, uh, and but yeah. so, so that's how far back our archives go. And of course, they also go up to the 2010s, even up till this year. So for this first segment that we're talking about, we're just going back to 2010 with Bruno Mars. Also coming up, Christopher, you and I were thrilled when we came across these Van Morrison clips from about 1970 because you don't often hear Van talking about the very early hits like Brown Eyed Girl, which went by a different name, and Domino. And he talks about the horns in Domino, which is great. So he talks about these songs in these clips, and it's just fantastic. And we need to talk about the dichotomy that is Van Morrison live in concert. We've both seen him, you more often than me, and the experience is always, shall we say, unpredictable. And we also have a really great chat with one of the more maligned and I think underappreciated artists ever, Phil Collins. This chat goes back to 1996. Phil was still a very viable and successful artist, but he had just left Genesis and his solo career was on the downslide. You can tell there's a lot going on in his life, both professionally and personally, and of course, There's lots more heartache and pain to come for Phil. But at the time of this chat, he's very happy and upbeat. Can't wait for everyone to hear about that. But first, Bruno Mars. Well, Peter Jean Hernandez has done all right in his relatively brief career. Since 2010, the artist known as Bruno Mars has sold over 130 million records. He's won 11 Grammys and performed at the Super Bowl after starting out as a four-year-old Elvis impersonator. I don't just mean in the living room, you know, for for the family. I mean, he actually got up on stage and performed as an Elvis impersonator. Well, if you want to see 
little Bruno Mars, I think at the age of seven, doing his Elvis impersonation, <laughs> like little, uh-huh. and full-on Vegas-era Elvis, see the movie Honeymoon in Vegas. That's that Nicolas Cage, Sarah Jessica Parker romantic comedy from 1992, and you will see Bruno Mars there. Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah, You've done great. homework. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Uh, Bruno's early success came as a songwriter-producer for other artists, people like CeeLo Green, Florida, and Kanon, with whom he worked on the massive hit Wave and Flag. Mm-hmm. In this interview, which was recorded on his first visit to Canada, uh, Bruno talks about that collaboration, his favorite song he's written, and where the music began for him. How you doing? Um, it's good to have you here. Excellent, man. First time uh, in Canada. Is it? Yeah, never been here before. Any nice other, people, it's man. It's great. Yeah. Everyone is very happy. It, it, that's what I was... It's Canada, eh? Yeah. Absolutely. They, they love the song mm-hmm. out here. Which one? <laughs> they, they love all of them, man. <laughs> well, just the way you are is doing pretty well out here. And they, they, Absolutely. Yeah. We did, the show, we did a show the other night, and they were just screaming it, and it was just an incredible feeling. Yeah, that's a great one. And uh, Grenade is the new one that we have on the radio as oh, well. Man. It's like, how do you keep doing this, man? It's like hit after hit, song after song. How do you How do you do it? <laughs> you know, I, 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 I... And I'm asking for lessons because <laughs> I need more money. You know what, man? I wish I knew. <laughs> I, I wish I knew. You know, I wish I knew a little uh, a method on, on what I'm doing. I'd probably write... A hit song every minute, but uh, you know, just it's really just being in the studio and trying to capture an emotion and, and mm-hmm. really pouring out your heart or, or pouring out whatever feeling that you feel and making it feel right. Yeah, yeah, I love uh, just the way you are. It's a great song. I have a, a little baby girl, and it's uh, it, you know that song. I feel like it, it can apply to a girl you're in love with, or, or just j- just any girl in your life. Right, right. You put it all down. I think it would be great for uh, for Valentine's Day cards. You, it, could, you could break up the line. That's right. I only want twenty percent. Deal. It's a good idea. Done. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's like it's almost like every compliment you could give a girl all it really in one is. song. And it's, it's nice. pretty straightforward too. You know, like yeah, it's yeah. just telling a girl she's beautiful. And uh, I think that's why people are. You know, I think that's why people like it because yeah, it's real. Yeah. Well, I think you know, you you just as an artist, uh, you seem uh, you know more real. I don't want to say some people aren't real, but it, you could tell that you kind of live and, and breathe music, and you've been doing it your whole life. That's you're, all I know, man. Your family. So I mean, you started this as a kid, so you've been just straight through since childhood. Yeah, yeah. I'm not too good at sports or anything like that be- <laughs> because of the music. So yeah. Uh, but you know, that's that's where I grew up, man. There was instruments everywhere in the house, and my father being a drummer, my mother being a singer. It's my habitat. Yeah. Yeah. So if the music stuff don't work out, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. Well, I, I, I don't think you have to worry about that. That's good. <laughs> you know, plan B, you could, uh, you know, go back and just, uh, you know, being in the studio and writing hits for other people. Yeah, hopefully, man. Now, you've uh, you've done quite a, a few big songs. Uh, one of them, uh, you worked on, on Canon Wave and Flag. That's right. Which up here was massive. Oh, yeah, he's from uh, Canada. Oh, man, it was huge yeah. up here. And, and with the Olympics, they did... Um, you know, it was just everywhere. You know, the funny story about that is that was kind of our first break. Really? Um, yeah, we weren't, you know, really producing at the time. We just kind of, uh, I don't want to say the word tricked, but we kind of uh, <laughs> we kind of told, you know, Kanon and his camp, like, yeah. yeah, we're producers. Come come check us out. We can produce. And um, Waving Flag was a very special song to him. And mm-hmm. we did some other songs and built a trust and a great friendship. And finally he said to us, he said, uh, you know, I got this this hook that I sing at the shows. And by the end of the end of the night, everyone's singing it. It's my baby. It's such a personal song to me. I would love for you guys to take a stab at it to see, uh, you know, what we can come up with. 
and he had that hook when I get older mm-hmm. I will, and we heard it and it was just like man that's huge let's try to make it like a stadium anthemic song yeah yeah you know only and then uh, the soccer uh, Coca-Cola World Cup picked yeah. it up so it's incredible when I get older Yeah, and up here it was, a, it was just a massive hit. That's uh, great. You know, so that one along with all the other stuff, uh, I mean, you've worked with uh, just a ton of people from, uh, you know, from Florida to... Well, the funny story about the Florida, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you got another one? Uh, no, Did you no, lie no. to him too about, <laughs> about your resume? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, man. It's been a very, very good year for us. Absolutely. So what, uh, you know, as far as, you know, kind of being in the studio or on stage, do you, do you have a, a preference as to what you like to do most? Or? Well, you know what? There's a different feel. There's a f- different feeling for both. Mm-hmm. I think you know, like when we were in the studio writing uh, with Kanan and we produced the track and it was finally done. You know, there's a there's a feeling that you get that is hard you know to recreate. And then the same thing goes on stage when you're on stage and people are singing back the song that you've written. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a whole nother feeling. So I think they kind of come in. They kind of they work together. Both of both of. Uh, those feelings <laughs> mm-hmm. and it must be a good you know good situation because you get to get a, a taste of all of it from you know from behind the scenes to being up on stage you yeah. know it's not like uh it's not like you're going up and singing someone else's song you know it's it's what you put together and right. and produced and wrote so congratulations on Thank your success you, brother appreciate that let's talk about grenade uh Ooh, that song that's my part right there that's my blues right there <laughs> that's the blues record yeah, it's uh, it's a song. It's you know, it, it doesn't sound like anything you've ever heard before, and I, I like that about a lot of your songs because once they come on, it's kind of like what? For, who is? Well, now everyone knows, but the first time we heard you was like, who is this? Oh man, and, and in a good way. Thank you. And, that's that song. You know, that, I think that's one of my my favorite songs, if not my favorite song on the album. Mm-hmm. You know, it took us a while to write the song. You know, we had this. Uh, uh, We'd have we'd have a couple lines of the song, but you know it, it. We were we weren't wrapping it up. We weren't getting the point across to what we were really trying to say. When I say we, I'm talking about you know my production team who I work with all mm-hmm. the time, the Smeezingtons. Um, and you know it took us about a month to finally f- finish it. And when we did, I was so happy with it. And uh, I I hope I hope they you know the world accepts it like they did just the way you are. Yeah, I don't think that's going to be a problem. I think it's going to be. Uh, I think it's going to be another big one. I hope so. J- just as a guy, I have to ask. I mean, if you're catching this grenade, are, are you throwing it immediately away, or are you holding on to this thing? Or, I mean, how how in love are you with this girl? Oh man, <laughs> I mean, definitely been there before. You know, yeah, where yeah, it's yeah. like, man, I don't get it. Uh, you know, what am I doing wrong? Uh, and that that's just what that song is. It's just being frustrated. I mean, it is like, extreme, of course, with mm-hmm. saying, oh, know, yeah, "Catch yeah. a grenade and throw my hand on a blade." But that's the poetic side of your boy Bruno Mars. <laughs> <laughs> there he is right there, Bruno Mars. There he is Mars, right there with that creepy voice. Wrapping it up right there. <laughs> yeah. I'll catch a grenade for you, girl. All right, now it's getting weird. Yeah, I think that would take, that, the song would definitely take on a different vibe. You're not cracking the Hot 100 with that, uh, that, that inflection right there. <laughs> Oh, Bruno hanging out in in the studio today. Um, you have a couple of songs coming up on Glee, which is um, Isn't that cool. It's pretty cool. Thank bless them, man. They, you know they did Billionaire uh-huh. uh, a couple weeks back. Um, they're doing the CeeLo song, mm-hmm. uh, and they're doing um, Just the Way You Are, and another song on my record called Marry You, which I thought was okay. really uh, exciting. That the, you know, song's not a hit 
or anything. I, they just kind of, I guess, taking a chance with it. They like it. They like it. They could maybe they'll turn it into a hit. Hopefully, you know, it, it, it's such a big show. It's yeah, a, like a people, phenomenon. Now, have you uh, have you had a chance to kind of hear the performances yet, or do you you know just just like the no, rest of I us heard, watch it on I TV? I heard um, the Gwyneth Paltrow singing uh, "Fu" today. Okay. That was that was great. She did a great job. I thought when they did Billionaire, they did a great job. You know, unfortunately, I don't really have time to watch TV, so I don't get yeah. to catch the show. But uh, I'm, I, I, I'm going to make sure I tune into that. Yeah, that you want to take that one out? Yeah. There you go. November of 2010, eight years ago, a great, very early career interview with Bruno Mars on his very first trip, and I think his very first interview in Canada. Christopher, let's talk a little bit about Bruno Mars. You and I have a few feelings yeah. about him. I actually think he's absolutely one of the most talented artists around today. And I've seen him live, and Agreed. I've seen him at uh, two Super Bowls, and he is fantastic. There's absolutely no denying his talent. But to me, yeah. Bruno Mars is not an artist. He's an entertainer. And I think he was raised ah, that way. And I think that he has the potential of being a great, great artist, writing really meaningful songs. But right now, I think that his songs sometimes border on novelty, like Uptown Funk. Uptown Funk is one of my favorite records of all time, but it's also, to me, a bit of a novelty record. And, you know, when I saw him live uh, just a few months ago, the highlight of the show was a song called When I Was Your Man. And it wasn't any of the up-tempo songs. It was that one ballad, and he sang it like he meant it. And, of course, that's him mm. as a great singer and a great interpreter. But, but there's something that's just slightly missing, and this is an apology to all Bruno Mars fans, but to me, there's something that's just slightly missing that's going to take him from the realm of a great performer to a great, great artist, which I think he has the possibility and the potential to be. You know, you say the word entertainer, in an almost disparaging tone. <laughs> and I, I'm not sure that that's true. Right. Uh, I mean, where do, where do you draw the line? Um, I mean, he... I mean, Bruce Springsteen is a phenomenal entertainer. Mm -hmm. Bette Midler is a phenomenal entertainer. Is she a great artist or is she just an entertainer? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. Is she an interpreter, you know? I mean, to me, if you go to a show... And you come away with that buzz, that feeling that you get when you've seen something that's just so fantastic that it just completely elevates you and lifts you up and, 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 and makes you alive and in love with the music again and again and again. That's enough. That's, that's all you need to do as far as I'm concerned. And, and I, I think that's almost a, a very fine distinction to, be, to put on things. I mean, he, you're right. He's a super talented guy. Where where he has, I think, some problems is, is there's a likability thing. I'm, I'm always surprised by people who say, well, yeah, Bruno Mars, but I don't like him. It's like, well, what's not to like? The guy can do this, 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 yeah. and this, but it's somehow it's never enough. It is very interesting. And it is funny that earlier this year at the Grammy Awards, when he won Album of the Year, um, that there was such a blowback, and, and it was that Bruno Mars was the safe bet. Because there was a few other albums that were also very, very deserving, if not more so, than the Bruno Mars album. So there is quite a bit of um, opinion that goes against Bruno Mars that I don't completely understand, but I know how I feel. And you're absolutely right. As an entertainer, he is virtually second to none, but there's something about it to me that's missing. To me, it's all for show. I mean, he, he's been charged with a lot of things. He's been charged with sort of cultural appropriation of yep. all things. And mm -hmm. I... 
I mean, I understand where they're coming from, but I'm not particularly sympathetic. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody borrows. Yes. We all have our sources. We all have the places that we go to. We all have the music that we grew up listening to, which finds its way into our work, whether we like it or not. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, were the Rolling Stones appropriators because their their first album had like Muddy Waters things on it? Yeah. You know? And Led Zeppelin. Yeah, exactly. I mm-hmm. mean, some of those borrowings resulted in lawsuits in yeah. the case of, um, you know, Willie Dixon's song, You Need Love, where they yeah. got a whole lot of love from. For sure, for sure. So that's Bruno Mars' early career interview with him from 2010 on Famous Lost Words. Okay, a couple of episodes ago, we talked about the songs we hate to love. That is, songs that we know are kind of lousy, but we love them anyway. And we've had quite a bit of feedback. So what we want you to do as a listener is visit us on Facebook or tweet us about the songs that you know are lousy, but you love them anyway. And we're going to feature some of those from you, the listeners, with your names if you want, on a future episode of Famous Lost Words. Christopher? Remember how excited I was by email when I sent you these clips just a couple of days ago? Yes. I was so excited. Me too. I didn't even recognize Van Morrison's voice. When I first heard these clips, I said, who's this guy? Why is he talking about brown-eyed girl? Oh my God, it's Van Morrison. And I said, Christopher, I know you're busy, but can you have a listen to these? And you were right back at me. Absolutely. I'm a huge Van Morrison fan. This is great. Well, you expect the Irish lilt. Mm -hmm. And he sounds, as you say, much more American. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Van is a towering musical talent. He's had a massive influence on artists from the late 60s right up until today. Now, at the beginning, he was playing kind of a hard-edged, R&B-influenced rock and roll with the Irish band Them in the mid-60s. But the sweep of his musical influences includes everything from traditional folk to jazz and beyond. He's also won every award out there that there is, topped off when he was knighted by Prince Charles in 2016. Oh. So in this interview, Van covers a lot of ground and looks all the way back to his first recordings with the late Burt Burns. Not a household name, Mm-mm. but a guy whose influential career has been recognized lately. He wrote uh, Twisted Shout, uh, Piece of My Heart, Under the Boardwalk. And there's a documentary called Bang. That was the name of the label, The Burt Burns Story. Mm-hmm. In this clip, he talks about Burns playing him a song that he'd written for him called Here Comes the Night, and he heard it for the first time. Part of it sounds like kind of like the British uh, pop thing, and the other part sounds like, you know, R&B, but I don't think it was a deliberate. Uh, and uh, he came up uh, the office, and uh, he had his guitar, and uh, he sang a few songs, and one of them was that. And uh, I really, I really dug the song, so I said, "Let's, you know, that's one I would like to record." He had a few others at the same time, which we recorded around the same time. One of them was "I Gave My Love to Diamond." I can't remember. There was a couple of other songs. The breakthrough song with them came in the form of Gloria, now considered a garage band classic. It was recorded a decade too. There was two drummers on that one. I thought was the uh, one of the drummers on that record was called. I think his name was Bobby Gregg, or no, Bobby Graham. Bobby Graham, I remember him, he's a fantastic drummer. And uh, he really, I think he really made that thing work. I mean, I really think that the drums were really a very, very important part in that record, making it happen. In case you're wondering how that song goes, it's spelt like this, G-L-O-R-I-A, Gloria. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Van's solo career was launched with a song that had a different title when it was written. Van is a little, shall we say, hazy on the details. Uh, that's what was on, like, the, the box, you know, when I, I had, like, a tape wrote the name. Yeah, actually, when I did, I started kicking around that idea. 
and it was Brunson girl to begin with, but I don't know, with, you know, in between when it was called that, and I realized that, you know, Brunson girl might be a better context, you know, like they might think it's like a, um, I actually thought about the Jamaican type thing, man, you know, which maybe would have been called reggae today, you know, if I had, I had that title. So somehow the title got around the brown-eyed girl, and I, but I don't remember the change. I just remember that, well, you know, when I when I recorded it with brown-eyed girl, and when I looked at the tape box, it still said brown skin girl on it. So some somewhere between the time I made my own demo and I went in the studio, the title changed. Wait, what? Brown-eyed girl was called brown skin girl. That is crazy, mm-hmm. you know, and it wouldn't get played as much as it still does if it had been called that, that's for sure. Well, speaking of things not getting played, he brings up a story that I'd never heard, that the lyrics to Brown Eyed Girl were originally considered controversial. Here's the story. I thought it, they were, I thought it was a joke. I thought they were kidding me because um, Bert Burns, who was, then was head of buying records, uh, he called me up and he, he said, he said, this record is a hit, only we have a, a problem with it, and it's becoming a major problem. And I said, well, what's the problem? And he said, well, it's like the line, making love in the green grass, right? So I, I thought it was, I said, you've got, you know, you must be joking. I mean, that's, that's that kind of line is, um, I mean, it's like nursery rhymes or something, you know? I mean, I really realized that, you know, but he said, no, for, no, seriously. A lot of people won't play it because of that line. I mean, what's the line is about, I mean, that's about as innocent as Bo Peep. Oh, yeah. So a few years ago, probably 15, 20 years ago, I bought The Best of Van Morrison Volume 1. And I, I DJ, so I'm playing it at one of the dances because everybody wants to hear Brown Eyed Girl at one of these events, especially if it's an oldies dance. And I'm playing it and I'm going... Why did they take out the one line? That's wrong. So instead of um, making love in the green grass behind the stadium with you, it, they, they replay the part where it's laughing and a running, hey, hey, and then behind the stadium with you. And so you're going, why did they edit that out? And I'm going, is that some sort of weird radio edit? And I'd never heard of that, but they include <laughs> that on the greatest hits, if you can believe it. And this is like way past when it was a hit in the late 60s. I know, strange tales. Yeah, for sure. I love him talking about his earlier work, though. He's very sort of clear-eyed about it. The story uh, of the song Domino and how it originated is, for me, one of those great sagas of songwriter's surgery. Well, Domino, to begin with, was actually two songs. One of them was like I had had like a riff. The oh, oh, Domino part was, you know, like the hook that I had, and I didn't have anything to go with it. And I had this other song that I was also working on, where I had all the verses called Time for a Change. I mean, I had all the, the lyrics and everything, but I didn't have any, you know, I didn't have any hook on the song. And these two songs were really, it was really frustrating that none of them, I couldn't get either one finished, so I just decided to put them together. I don't know what made me do that, but I just joined them together and made them into one song, and that's, Oh, that's fantastic. So he just has a word and a riff in his head, and it just turns into just a classic song. And those horns in there, that's fantastic. Well, there's nothing like a little middle-of-the-night inspiration, as Van relates here. Yeah, there, there was a lot involved in putting that that record, to, that song and the record together, you know? I mean, it's one of those that just didn't come together very quickly, you know? It came together over a period of time. But that's, that was the last thing I came up with, was that riff just before recording it. Uh, I, when I 
put those two songs together to make the Domino song, I realized that it didn't have any break in it. So the last thing I came up with that riff, you know, by four o'clock in the morning, I jumped up and I played that riff on the guitar and discovered that it was a great horn riff. I just gave it to the horn players. There you go. There are those horns on Domino. That's Van Morrison from what we think is around 1960, 1970. That's deep in our archives. And once again, if you're new to the show, sometimes we don't know when these clips are date stamped. Um, it's just 19... We're guessing based on what he's talking about. And the fact that he's kind of treating Domino as a new song or a recent song, we think it might be from 1970. Christopher, did you ever see Van live? A number of times. Oh. And I had just fantastic experiences seeing him. I was a huge Van fan mm -hmm. um, when I was a kid. And as was my, my cousin John, who was the first person to teach me a song on guitar. And so when the two of us finished school, we decided to get in a van with a couple of guitars and my dog and drive to California from Toronto. And one of the things we, our biggest objectives was the hope that we would see Van Morrison live because we knew that he lived in Northern California. So we got there and after a couple of months, sure enough, a van show was announced at this beautiful venue called the Marin County Civic Center. It's a, a Frank Lloyd Wright building that is literally gorgeous. Wow. So we were just, you know, pumped. I mean, stoked beyond belief to see Van. We were in our seats way too early. <laughs> Jesse Colin Young was the opening act. And so, but we also knew that Van had a reputation for being mm, a little tough, a little temperamental. Oh, no kidding. And a little unpredictable. Right. So we went in and our attitude was, well, you know what? If he just comes on stage and hiccups, we'll have to be satisfied with that. <laughs> so, cut to the show. The band comes out and they play the opening to St. Dominic's Preview, title track from his new LP. We're so excited. And then I see Van in the wings and he's sort of strumming a guitar and looking at the ground. And then he makes his way out to the microphone, doesn't say anything, and he looks physically uncomfortable and unhappy. And he keeps swinging around and kind of aggressively turning the audience or turning to the band, snapping his fingers and going, pick it up, pick it up, pick it up, right? And I guess the band didn't pick it up as fast as Van wanted it to. So he stormed off. And my cousin and I were looking at each other going, that's it. That's all we're going to get. Oh my We better God. be happy. And, he, and the band are looking around kind of to the side of the stage wondering, what do we do now? His backup singer was Jackie DeShannon. Whoa! And she was she was standing on a little cube on the stage, sort of looking like a lost go-go girl. And it was one of those moments where you just think, okay, is this how it's all going to end? Well, about a minute later, he came back out, rushed through the rest of the song, and then ended up doing one of the best shows I've ever seen. Well, you know, I'm not surprised, even though that is a shocking story. Um, I'm not surprised you hear so <laughs> many stories about Van Morrison. He's a little bit like Bob Dylan. You never quite know which Van or which Bob you're going to get when you see him live. And I've heard so many horror stories about Van Morrison not being remotely interested in being there. And then I've also heard and I've seen one Van Morrison show and thankfully he was pretty much on his game. He certainly wasn't friendly, but he managed to put on a, a you know a really 
decent show, great vocals, and of course the musicianship was absolutely amazing. So yes, I've seen Van, but a lot of people have seen Van at his worst. Well, speaking of Dylan and Van, I saw them do a couple of shows together at UCLA with Joni Mitchell. Hmm. And it was interesting that over the course of the two nights, Joni's set was absolutely, note for note, identical. Dylan's was pretty close. He moved maybe a couple of songs around, but that was it. Van, it was like seeing two completely different shows. (laughs) And it was fantastic. That's great. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. And Christopher, I do believe that one of the most misunderstood and one of the most harshly criticized artists in the history of pop music and rock music is Phil Collins. Well, he can just cry on his bed of money, can't he? (laughs) You know, Phil has been through a whole lot over the last many years, um, including Mm -hmm. some personal injuries regarding his ability to play the drums and to do a lot of things. And he recently fell during a concert. It's been a bit of a tough ride for him. But you know, there's a lot to be said about Phil Collins' contribution to music, especially music in the 70s and 80s. Of course, his work with Genesis and of course his solo work. And I still maintain that face value his first solo album is one of the best uh, debut albums um, by a solo artist of all time. It's so well done. It's so passionate. He really does put his heart and soul into that music as well. Um, So what we're going to do is we're going to go back to 1996. So that's really quite a ways after the fact of his peak and um, hear him in conversation with Dale Smith. Okay, um, you did mention on the new album that you do uh, The Times They Are Changing. What was the choice? Just you just felt you wanted to do a Dylan song? Yeah, well, the reason that it kind of I went in that direction was because um, with with um, having been through my personal stuff and making a record, I think people were kind of thinking, oh, God, you know, now we're going to get another divorce album. Um, <laughs> and I didn't want to do that. Thank you very much. I didn't want to do it for a variety of reasons. I didn't, it wasn't fair on the people involved. It wasn't fair on the listeners. And I certainly wasn't going to play into the critics' hands. So... I just thought, you know, I, I'm happy that that reflected the music. But I, I did put a lot of tripwires in front of me, things around me that would, have, would influence me. And I took a lot, all the things I had in my car, I took them out and put Dylan's CDs in there. I put all greatest hits, but Dylan's greatest hits. I'm a big Dylan fan, you know, not a huge, but a big one. And I uh, just put it in there for some different, different lyrical imagery, you know, just to push myself in hearing different words. You know, kind of, it sounds a silly thing, I suppose, but when you actually want to steer yourself in another direction, you try and point yourself by surrounding yourself with different things, you know? So, um, and in doing so, I heard Times They Were Changing amongst other, other songs that I'd, you know, forgotten that I liked. And I went out and bought that as a single when it first came out in 64. And I just thought it'd be fun to do it. And I didn't really know if it was going to go on the album or not. I just went home and played it and did a demo of it. And, uh, you know, I kind of grew to like it a lot. And, and um, you know, the people involved with the record started to, to, to sort of say it should go on the record. So there it is. Let's face it, your breakup albums are great because so many of us can, you know, we can, <laughs> we can relate to them so well. But in this situation, now you seem to be, I saw you on Good Morning America the other day, and you seem to be more on a, as opposed to being in, a, in one of the downs in your life, you're on one of the peaks right now. Things are going well for you? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not coming down anymore. That's it? Dang. I'm staying That's up it. there. I'm staying up there. Um, yes, you know, I mean, it's, it's a bit unfair, you know, when, when, when you... When you go on television and on radio and in print saying how happy you are, the people that you've been with must think, and the public must think, well, was he never happy before? Or, you know, and I have to say that I had a very happy marriage, you know. I was, but things happen. Things go wrong. And, and sometimes they're your fault, and it was my fault. But things go wrong. And so, 
you know, I went through a little bit of a dark place and I'm now out of the woods and I'm, I'm back. I'm, I'm back very, very happy now. I live in another country. I, you know, my life is totally different, you know, than it was before, um, which is not a, not a bad thing to happen in your life because you get a chance to, to see things very, very differently. Um, but everything, is, everything is, is great, and I think that does reflect in the music. Um, there's not really a sad song on the record, to be quite honest. It's all very optimistic and very, very celebratory. Now, you've also moved on from Genesis. Mm. Now, that's a total break in your life. I mean, not only with the marriage, but with that all at the same time. That's got to be, well, well it's got to be exciting. There's got to be some, a eh, little trepidation mixed in. Well, if you just stay with what's safe, you know, then um, you never change anything. Really. I mean, one mustn't confuse me leaving Genesis and wanting to sort of to do things new in my life um, with the fact of the, the personal stuff. How did Tony and Mike react to that? They were quite, um, they were fine about it. I mean, whether they went after they left me, whether they went behind closed doors and started yelling and crying, I don't know. No, I, that, I had lunch with them at a uh, manager's house when this was discussed, and Tony and Mike... We, we talked about everything but that over lunch, you know. And then halfway through, you know, we sort of, someone said, I think we should probably discuss what, we, you know, what you've come here to tell us. So I said, yeah. And Mike said, well, you want to leave? That's fine, we understand. That's fine, you know, we understand. And Tony, Tony Banks said, well, it's a sad day. Which is exactly how he said it. He said, well, it's a sad day, but we understand, you know. I mean, he, you know, one always wants things to go on forever, but they can't sometimes go on forever. Are they going to treat it as sort of almost an Alan Parsons project where they can bring in different singers depending on the song? I don't think they'd, they'd like to do that. I mean, I don't know, of course, because I've not been sort of witness to what's been going on. I mean, I, I, uh, I think Mike has that situation and Tony has that situation on his records, so I think they'd like to get someone that's going to be... They've obviously, you know, found someone or, or people. I mean, I thought at one point they were going to have two people, which would have been in a way smart because it kind of it diverts it from being one guy's replacement. Yeah. But uh, whatever they do, I think the spirit of Genesis is still definitely there because Tony and Mike, they're the spirit of Genesis. Yeah. And, um, and without me, it will still be Genesis, but it won't be my voice. Yeah. Well, you got that distinctive sound. That distinctive sound. But... I mean, they survived. Hey, people thought, wow, when Peter left, yeah. you know, that was it. And, right. and look at what happened. Yeah, it went right downhill. I think, um, <laughs> yeah. I think if people are, you know, if people are, are open-minded, I mean, my first gig was in London, Ontario with, with Genesis yeah. as a singer. We, our first three gigs, well, I think it was Hamilton, Kitchener and London, Ontario. And um, people were open-minded. I mean, it was, a different, it was a different music business then. It was people were different. But, I mean, um, you know, I mean, I kind of, I, I want them to succeed at least... I want people to be open-minded about it, and, and I, I don't want to destroy anything. I just want to sort of extract myself from that situation so I can do other things. That's the most important thing to me. I have now got more space in my life, which I'd like to keep. Uh, you know, I had six months off last year. It was the first time I've ever done it. And um, I really enjoyed it. And I've got my boat, you know, I do some skiing. I, I just like being at home and write. I still write music. I'm not slowing down, but I just like to spend more time at home. Can we see you doing any acting? Uh, not in the foreseeable future. No, there's nothing on the cards, no. I mean, I'd like, I really would like to spend more time at home. I mean, I know this makes me sound... It's a very strange thing to say because it's, it's like... You know, it sounds like I'm sort of retiring. But it isn't that at all. I just uh, don't want to be on the road for a long time, which is why I'm doing... Tour, I'm touring next year, March and April. 
so I'll be coming through here. And uh, I'm touring Europe at the other end of the year. And I'm still writing for Dis the Disney thing, which is, you know, like mu music, but for, for this particular movie and hopefully other movies. I'm, I've got my big band thing, which is uh, I take out for like two or three weeks at a time. We did two or three weeks this, this last summer. I'll do it again this year, probably. It's just that I don't, um, you know, I'd like to be, a, if my daughter rings me up and wants me to sort of, you know, get together, then it would be... It would be my little one. You know, it'd be nice to be able to do it. So I just want to try and clear some space in my life, really. Okay, so there you go. So, Christopher, did you know... This is such an odd choice to me, covering a Bob Dylan song. Oh, yeah, right at the very beginning. That's right. He, so he talks about how he covered a Bob Dylan song and how Dylan was an influence on him. And that's, that's kind of wild because you don't expect to hear Phil Collins and Bob Dylan in the same conversation. And uh, if you did, you'd wonder about the sanity of the person who was saying those two names back-to-back. Uh, -back. Um <laughs> <laughs> well, you associate him in the world of covers with things like You Can't Hurry Love. That's and, right. You know, all those, uh, you know, 60s Motown things that he did. Yeah. But so, you know what? The guy is an amazing musician, and why limit his uh, his reach? Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about what's coming up with Phil Collins, because the good folks at Warner Music have sent us uh, some information about a new box set with Phil Collins called Plays Well With Others, and it's coming out in just... Great uh, title. Yeah, for sure, because it is his collaboration with a lot of people, including Paul McCartney, Eric Clapton, and Robert Plant, among many others. That box set comes out on September 28th, so that's very soon and might be a great collection for, uh, you know, the Phil Collins fan in your life. Favorite Phil Collins moment, summer of 1985. Do you know where I'm going? This would be July 13th, 1985, Christopher? <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Phil Collins, live at Wembley as part of Live Aid. Yes. And then, of course, he jumped on the, uh, the Concord and then played in Philadelphia. That's right. Eh, you got to love that. That's for sure. So, Christopher... Phil Collins also continues with his Not Dead Yet Live North American tour. And I really do think that probably now is the time to see Phil because he doesn't tour a lot. He hasn't been healthy. So it might be great because some of those songs conjure up some great memories over the years. Did he ever come into your show? Yes, as a matter of fact, he did. And, you know, Phil was great. He was very friendly. But I got to tell you, and I've told you the story a few episodes ago in season one, where he was very, very hurt by some of the backlash that he faced, especially in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, how, you know, people were saying that it's a Phil Collins free weekend and um, they weren't going to play his music. And oh, he was he was really devastated by that. And even as recently as a few years ago, there's an article in Rolling Stone called Phil Collins last stand and he was just beside himself why people would talk about him like that and I do think that it was the ubiquitousness of his ballads of his very many ballads that probably kind of took him down in the long run even though they were very popular I wasn't a big fan of the ballads I really liked his kind of smarter and progressive stuff and more up-tempo stuff a bit more but I think it hurt him in the long run and I think he just became a running joke and you know Liam Gallagher and uh, and his brother were saying some pretty nasty things um, about Phil Collins during that time. I interviewed him once, and I found him to be extremely thoughtful, cerebral, a really good listener, and he, he was a terrific interview subject. And once again, that box set from Warner Music is Phil Collins Plays Well With Others, a 59-track set that will be released on four CDs and as a digital download. Get your Phil. Okay, there you go. Another episode of Famous Lost Words. By the way, 
That was our second last episode of season two. Our finale, our grand finale, coming up next week. If you need to get caught up with past episodes, don't forget to download the iHeartRadio app or listen to us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Special thanks to our producer, Adam Karsh, executive producer, Rob Farina. 